Hi guys, my name is Sarah and I'll be reading the passage for you today. Today's passage is Proverbs 17 for the first 14 verses and you can find that on the back of your handout. Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A prudent servant will rule over a disgraceful son and will share the inheritance as one of the family. The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. A wicked person listens to deceitful lips. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. Whoever mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. Whoever gloats over disaster will not go unpunished. Children's children are a crown to the aged, and parents are the pride of their, gener- of their children. Eloquent lips are unsuited to a godless fool. How much worse lying lips to a ruler. A bribe is seen as a charm by the one who gives it. They think success will come at every turn. Whoever would foster love covers over an offence, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. A rebuke impresses a discerning person more than a hundred lashes a fool. Evildoers foster rebellion against God. The messenger of death will be sent against them. Better to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than a fool bent on folly. Evil will never leave the house of one who pays back evil for good. Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam, so drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. I guess like me, you often feel that acute need for wisdom when it comes to friendships. As one area of life, I think all of us feel we stuff up so often. I don't just mean romantic stuff, that's a whole separate issue. Even just normal friendships with our mates, our family, our colleagues at work, uh, our lecturers and tutors at university. I think one of the, popular, one of the reasons for the popularity of Big Bang Theory is that all the friendships in it are dysfunctional. Aren't they? You want to pull your hair out and say, come on, can't you work out how to make friendships work? We can relate to that. But the other funny thing about it, I think that makes it attractive, is that all the friendships keep going despite them being dysfunctional. They haven't killed each other yet. They're they're still there. They're still sort of friends. If you can believe the way they treat each other, could be friendship. Let me just turn this microphone down a little bit. Okay, is that more comfortable? See how we go. If you can't hear me, stick your hand up. Uh, I guess all of us have some friends like Sheldon, haven't we? I know that's not you, it's your friends. <laughs> the nerdiness that just seems to destroy friendships. But interesting thing about Big Bang Theory is even the nice people struggle with their friendships. And it's not that we set out to sabotage our friendships, it just happens, doesn't it? Who hasn't had some of their friendships turn sour? left with that tension that's, that's unresolved, drift apart. We may be very competent at exams and essays and sport, but friendships we find much more difficult. It seems easier to get on with a cat or a dog than our best friends. Human relationships have that complexity and, and dynamism to them, and there's no set of rules about what to do. Now, if somebody walks up to you and says, do you like my new hairstyle? There is no right answer. Let me tell you, you're not, it's not always good to say it looks beautiful. Sometimes that is the wrong answer. 
Well, the book of Proverbs has a whole lot of stuff about relationships and friendships. We're just going to scratch the surface today. But I want to go backwards for a little bit. Proverbs is about seeking wisdom, not in degrees and dollars, but in God and the way he runs his world. How do we get wise? Well, we've seen from Proverbs previously that we get wise from observation and experience. So what happens around us and what happens to us, we're supposed to learn from that and become wiser. But we also get it from others because others have had that experience. We can stand on their shoulders by listening to them. And in Proverbs, that wisdom has been distilled into those poetic aphorisms, those couplets. Wisdom is a gift from God because ultimately wisdom is not a mechanical intellectual process but the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, our creator, to recognise God's role in this world. Because wisdom is insight into the order of this world, how God runs his creation so that we can live in harmony with that order. And so it's only as we know God and his sovereign purposes and see his hand and become a humble learner under God that we can truly be wise. And the ultimate revelation of wisdom is in Jesus. This is an extraordinary statement by Paul in his letter to the Colossians. In the second half of it, he says, I want you to know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Every nugget, every diamond, every gem of wisdom is ultimately distilled in Jesus. It's hidden there. You look at the surface and you might say, I don't see any wisdom there. But God's plan to reconcile humanity to himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus is the epitome of wisdom. How do we interpret it? Well, we've seen that they're generalisations, not rigidly mechanical laws that are always followed, but something that we're to tune into, to, to understand what's going on, to get some insight into and apply to our own lives. It comes in riddles and goads. Riddles are things that are meant to make you puzzle and think. It, it doesn't reveal its, its beauty and its wisdom uh, uh, on a surface level. It's not just obvious. And they're goads. It's meant to irritate you, to get into your shoe and cause you discomfort until you take action. They're to help us make decisions. Because decisions in life are not just about right and wrong. We, we know what some of those are. We know God says this is right and this is wrong. But even within the right... There are wiser and more foolish decisions. There are naive decisions that just uh, come from not knowing things. Foolish end up being wrong, usually. Last week, we took a scattergun approach, because that's how Proverbs comes at us. Just verses, couplets, aphorisms, changing topics all the time. We got an experience of that again, just reading from chapter uh, chapter 17. Thanks, Sarah, for reading for us. But even as we heard those, I assume you saw some of them were related to friendship. It's an idea, it's a, a theme that comes up again and again. Last week we sampled them. This week we're going to do something different. We're going to gather together some of the ones about friendship. Now, when we do that, in one sense we limit the angle of view. When you just get a little proverb on its own and you hold it up and you look at it from different angles, you've got every angle to look at it. We're going to limit our angle of view to friendship. Which means we won't see everything that each proverb has to offer us, but we should see something in its relationship to friendship, our theme, and helpful. So let's look at wisdom on friendship. Firstly, Proverbs tells us about the value of true friends. A friend loves at all times. 
A brother is born for adversity. Easier to see what that's saying, isn't it? True friends stick with you through thick and thin. And you need that, don't you? Because the time you really need friends is times of adversity. When things are going well, friends are nice, they're comfortable, they're good to have around, they're fun, but it's when things turn bad, that's when you really need friends, isn't it? The trouble is, though, if your seeming friends abandon you at that point, when you most need them, friendships haven't been worth anything. Only true friends, the only friends that are really worth having, this proverb is saying, are the ones that stick with you through thick and thin. To be lonely and friendless is painful. But when adversity strikes, it's devastating, isn't it? If they abandon you when you really need them, they're useless. And the proverb, you almost get the sense that the person who wrote the proverb, King Solomon, he'd had that experience. He thought people were friends and then he discovered when it went bad, they weren't. And they weren't brothers either. And so this proverb provokes questions for us. Uncomfortable ones, really. Are my friends really friends? How will I find out? Will they stick with me when things turn sour? Am I a real friend? Or am I just a fair weather friend? Have I got, if you've got real friends, real friends who've stuck with you, that's an incredible blessing, isn't it? Be grateful for them. They may not be as exciting as the new kid on the block, but they're worth their weight in gold. Well, here's another one. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart and the pleasantness of one's friend springs from his earnest counsel. Friends are like good perfume, incense. At this point, think more men's locker room than romantic dinner. You know, the smelly locker room that needs covering up with some perfume. It's a joy when somebody sprays their stuff around and, phew, we can survive together. Well, think that, because friends are like that. They bring a pleasantness to life. But paradoxically, joy is not in their smooth pleasantries and jovial conversation, but in their earnest counsel, in the wise advice they give you. Now, counsel is often not very pleasant in itself, but their concern for you is very pleasant. They care enough to warn you, to teach you, to share their wisdom. And isn't it true that some of our friends... Some of us as friends are just simply too passive, aren't we? Too scared to give counsel, to give advice. Too lost in our own world to enter our friends' worlds. How do friends work? Well, quick sketch. We'll listen to some of what Proverbs says about how friendships work. Listen for the insight in each one of them. So here we go. Two of them together. A patient man has great understanding, but a quick-tempered man displays folly. Or woman, I take it. A hot-tempered man stirs up dissension, but a patient man calms a quarrel. That quick-tempered person who just loses it, who flies off the handle, they're not being true to their self, but foolish. Which probably means they are being true to themselves. But patient people, they show understanding it. Understanding. That losing it is counterproductive. And we sort of know that, don't we? But you might say, but Tim, I feel better when I get to vent out my pent-up rage against the drivers on the road who cut in in front of me, against my sister who's always just doing that silly stuff, against the dog because I can kick it, and against anybody who opposes me. You may feel better, but they won't. They'll never feel better. 
is just self-indulgent, isn't it? Stop. Consider the untold damage losing your temper has caused and will cause. Once you've lost your temper, you can't put it back in the box. It's out. You see the wisdom of that in your friendships especially? It moves on to dissension and quarrelling and arguing. Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. Can you imagine that? So what happens? How big a breach in a dam do you need for the dam to be destroyed? A very small one, actually. It just takes a tiny breach, a little flow of water, and what happens? It just keeps destroying the dam, and the whole thing washes away, doesn't it? So drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. See, a quarrel's like that. You think, oh, you know, I'll, just, I'll just answer back. I'll just disagree gently. And it's like breaching a dam. <laughs> Suddenly you're in the middle of this huge fight and you didn't know how you got there. Yeah, quarrelling's like that, isn't it? It escalates out of control so easily, so quickly. So he gives us some advice about it. Here's another one. Without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. Now, I want to get you to do what we did last week. Just turn to the person next to you. If you can be in pairs, I don't mind. If you've never met the person, here, you've got a new friend. See, it works. And I want you to try and work out what's the insight captured in this proverb and whether you've seen this happen. So talk to the person next to you. What's the insight in that proverb? And where have you seen it happen? Okay, anybody want to anybody want to venture a, a suggestion, a guess? What's the insight in it? Well, that like it's quite possible to like stop a conflict from happening if you just choose not to flare it up. Because, like, if you choose not to like make it flare up, like, yeah. Yep, yeah, okay. So, so it's about things flaring up, but what is it here that causes the flare-up? It's gossip. Now, why would gossip do it? Because gossip isn't actually in the discussion, is it? You're having this argument with somebody. Gossip is to somebody else. How does that cause it to flare up? Jordan's suggesting because it brings other people into the argument, which escalates it. Yeah, that's like that, isn't it? Have you ever had that experience? I hope you've talked about this, where you've had a bit of an argument with someone. You go away and you tell somebody else about the argument. And whenever you relate the argument, of course, you always come out looking good, don't you? You gossip about the other person and then they hear about it. 
And the person you've gossiped to, they're drawn into it, and the other person who you've been arguing with suddenly knows that you think they're a fool, even though you've been nice and pleasant to their face, and the whole thing goes... It's wood on a fire, isn't it? It's, it just escalates. You've seen that, haven't you? You've probably done that, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, it can do that too. It might amplify the ill feelings you have because you're down on them in your gossip. Yeah, thank you. You can see how that works, doesn't it? Now, it's sort of a little bit counterintuitive. You think the only thing that will inflame the argument is arguing with a person. But this is the insight. It's gossiping to others can almost be more devastating and more inflammatory. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is his glory to overlook an offence. Patience, overlooking offences, critical things in friendships. Now, it's interesting the way the second line works here. It's to his glory, it's to his honour that he overlooks an offence. Because what do we normally do when somebody offends us? How do we get our honour back? Because they've stripped us, they've stolen our honour. If they offend us normally, they say something cruel and bad about us. In the old days, you'd have a duel, wouldn't they? You'd say, come on. Six o'clock in the morning, ten paces, let's see who can shoot each other. We stand up for our honour. These days we take them to court for defamation or we flame them on Facebook. The only way to get our honour back is to react and put them down. And the proverb says, no, actually, it's to your honour to overlook it, to do nothing. Just let it pass. Partly because flaming inflames but also because, in a sense, you treat it as if it's not worth responding to. And it usually isn't. It's a helpful insight, isn't it, into how things work. He who answers before listening, that is his folly and his shame. That's a pretty easy one to work out, isn't it? The, uh, 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 the folly of speaking too soon, of jumping to conclusions. As the old saying goes, God gave you two ears and one mouth. Take that to heart. Listen carefully before you answer. Here's another couple. Just read them for yourself. Yes, heard some laughs. I think you're meant to laugh, aren't you? A little bit. And then get a bit serious. Seldom set foot in your neighbour's house. Too much of it, you, and they'll hate you. You can outstay your welcome. That is, you can be insensitive to the way in which your behaviour is affecting others. Second one's even more like that, isn't it? A man loudly blesses his neighbour early in the morning. You're blessing your neighbour. You're shouting out to him, have a great day, I'm praying for you. You think you're doing something good for him, but it's the wrong time, isn't it? You're insensitive to his sleeping and he thinks you're cursing him. He hates what you're doing. So it's about sensitivity. Friendships need that sensitivity. I wonder what's happening for them. How are they experiencing this? Not just what am I trying to do? What can I do? How can I express myself in the best way I can? Friendships do take that sort of sensitivity, don't they? Now, these things are sort of obvious, aren't they? We can read it and say, oh, yeah, I can see the truth in that. But do we change? Are they goads? Are they unsettling us as we recognise something of our own behaviour and think, I want to be wiser. I want to change. 
But also, we come to rebuke. Oh, sorry. Here's another one in, in that line. Like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death. This one isn't on your outline. Is the one who deceives their neighbour and then says, I was only joking. <laughs> You've seen that? You've done that. Something really damaging. And you try and laugh it off. It's just a joke. Don't, don't take it seriously. But they've already taken it seriously. It's too late. It's like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death when you do that sort of thing. Okay, rebukes. Better an open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. The real friendship is built on a frank honesty and a willingness to rebuke. Not to control, that's different, but to rebuke. Better is an open rebuke. See, an open rebuke is actually open love, isn't it? That's much better than hidden love. As our saying goes, friends stab you in the front. How do you recognise a true friend? How do you recognise an enemy? Well, the proverb says, an enemy is one who multiplies kisses. That is, they only ever affirming and flattering and warm and nice. They only ever tell you how terrific you are. And if, if somebody only ever tells you how terrific you are, you know they're lying, don't you? Because you're not terrific all the time, in every way. They've got to be lying. They're not your friend. Uh, true friends wound you sometimes. They care enough to say enough. Have you experienced that? Have you had a friend come and rebuke you? Because it's really tempting when that happens to think, oh, they must hate me. They're just being judgmental. They're just trying to put me down and cut me off. No, not usually. Sometimes, yes, but usually, if they care enough to speak up, they love you, welcome it, embrace it, listen to it. And if you see a friend veering off on the foolish track, will you say something to them? I know there's the risk, there's the fear of unknown reaction. Maybe they'll think I'm being judgmental. And after all, it's... I mean, what people, their own decisions are their own private decisions, aren't they? Who am I to speak into their life and say something about it? I don't want to jeopardise the friendship. I'll just keep quiet. No, that's not love, is it? That's not true friendship. Now, if we don't care enough for each other to speak up, to rebuke each other, we're not friends. If we won't listen to people's rebuke, we don't appreciate friendship. We don't know what friendship really is. And my fear is that our culture is moving more and more in that direction, isn't it? That it's wrong to speak into somebody else's life. It is just their private affair. But if we're going to be friends, we won't settle for that. We will rebuke and we'll welcome rebuke. We'll love it when people stab us in the front. And lastly in this bit, how does it work? Well... On your company, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Your friends influence you. I know psychologists are still trying to prove that your peer group affects you, but it's just true, isn't it? You know it's true. And your parents rightly worry that you're getting in with the wrong crowd. And one of the interesting things is, as you move into adulthood, your friends become much more like family. When you think about Big Bang Theory... It's actually, the friendships are much more their family than their families are. And many of you are in that stage of life now. But notice who to be with. 
He who walks with the wise grows wise. With the wise, not the clever, not the fun, not the successful, but the wise. Now, they're not mutually exclusive, but often we're not very wise. I want to turn briefly now to more specific relationship stuff. And Proverbs admits there's this mystery to life. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I don't understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a maiden. Now, normal friendships are complex enough, but romance and sex, well, we get to a whole new level of complexity and mystery when we get there, don't we? What attracts us to one person and not another? Why are we petrified that if there's a whiff of romance in our friendships, it'll demolish the friendships? Now, in the book of Proverbs, there's not not much about negotiating the beginnings of romance. There's no advice on the place to take the person for the first date. But there's a whole lot on the virtues to seek in a partner. Houses and wealth are inherited from parents, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. See, houses and money... It's just fate. You get it from your parents. You know, anybody can get that. Even Lang Hancock's children have got lots of that. It's nothing special. But a prudent wife is very special. That's a personal blessing from God to you. In Proverbs chapter 31, uh, right at the end, the, almost the climax of this whole book, we get this section that's often entitled the, the Wife of Noble Character. Let me read some of it for you. A wife of noble character, who can find... She's worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good and not harm all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She's like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar, not in physique, in a different way, like the merchant ships. She gets up while it's still night. She provides foods for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. She's an entrepreneur, a business lady. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. Uh, She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. There's a prudent wife who's noble and wise and careful and industrious and generous. And the writer says, who can find a woman like that? Well, I have, and I hope you do. Now, you might be thinking, hold on, this is all about the woman. This is putting it all on one side. Well, let's look at this one. A man claims to have unfailing love, but a faithful man who can find. That's what makes sense, a faithful man. That that, that includes sexuality, sexually faithful, but it's much wider than that. A man who keeps his word, who says it and then he does it, who follows through on all his commitments... Can you begin to imagine the difference that would make in a marriage to have a husband like that? Faithful. Maybe boring, but faithful. It's terrific. Now, there's a negative side to this, and the negative side, unfortunately, is more about wives than husbands, because this is about a dad to his son. I'm sure the women here can do the transposition and understand. Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife. See, there is something worse than loneliness. You might find that hard to believe. You might think, now the worst thing that can happen to me is I'm left lonely all my life. And the proverb says, no, there is something worse than loneliness. To be chained to a quarrelsome and ill-tempered spouse. 
Well, here's one. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Again, talk to the person next to you. In what ways do you see those two, similar, two situations are alike? The pig and the woman. How could this insight affect your actions? Have a chat. Okay, anybody want to explain the, the similarity between the two lines? Come on, have a go. Did you put your hand up in? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cameron. Yeah, yeah, I think that sort of that's on the right track, isn't it? There's something incongruous about a dirty, smelly pig with a gold ring in its snout, isn't there? And there's something incongruous about a beautiful woman who has no beauty in their character, who's got no discretion. You expect a beautiful woman to be beautiful in every way. But when they don't have discretion, they're not. There's a discrepancy between their outside form and who they really are, like a pig with a gold ring. Discretion is an interesting word, isn't it? Discretion is about carefulness, good judgment, and poor judgment, uncaring, is ugly and muddy and smelly like a pig. So what does this tell you about what makes a wise, wise choice for a partner in life? Well, it's quite different to the world's wisdom, I think, at this point where I suspect that for most people, physical beauty is 90% of the equation and compatibility is the other 10%. Are they the right age, the right height, the right IQ? Got similar interests to me. God's wisdom is things like discretion, prudence, faithfulness, generosity, industriousness. They may be short, fat and flunk the ATAR, but if they're discreet, they're great. You know, I say, that sounds so sensible, Tim, and boring. I I want a bit of excitement in my life. Well, this is what the father says to his son back in chapter 5. He says, drink water from your own system, running water from your own well. 
This is metaphorics, if you can pick up what he's talking about. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. What's he saying? Well, happy companionship and satisfying sex are actually in the quality and faithfulness of the relationship, not in the quality of the bodies. Well, how do we make sense of all this? One minute left. Let's do this quickly. Why are friendships so important? Why are good friends so valuable? Romance so irresistible? The evolutionary psychologist would just say, it's just your genes. That's what helps you perpetrate your genes and help them survive. But Christianity has a very different starting point. Because we start with God, who is the God of friendship. This has been true for eternity. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Before the creation of the world, what was there? The Father and the Son in the Spirit in deep personal friendship. A brilliant quality where the Father creates for the Son, who rules for the Father. Now, friendships are very intangible things, aren't they? You, you can't sort of quantify them, put them in a test tube. They're, you can't put them in the bank. And yet they're very real and enormously valuable. And they're not a means to an end, but they're an end in themselves. Very different to something like Islam, where God is a monad, and so fundamental reality is not relationships and friendships, but power. It's not love like it is with God. And incredibly... God values friendship with us. He's been working a plan for thousands of years to reconcile us to himself. It cost the life of his own son. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting their sins against them. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. So if you're not yet reconciled, if you're not yet in friendship with God, that's where you've got to start. Please. Do something to come back into friendship with God. God has done all that's necessary on his side. His son has died for you so your sins can be not counted against you. You just need to turn and welcome that friendship. And with our mates, there's lots of facets that are crucial to the quality of friendship, whether they're romantic or not, whether they're family or just friends. But the gospel wisdom, I think, is found in Jesus, which says forgiveness is critical. We see that in our experience of Jesus, not counting our sins against us because he took them for us. Because the reality is every one of our friends is less than ideal. And so are we. And the heart of getting on, what you can't get on without, is forgiveness. But forgiveness is actually one of the hardest things in the world to do. If somebody has really hurt you, if somebody has betrayed you, if somebody has let you down when you really needed and depended on them, you'll know how hard it is to forgive. You can only do it if you've experienced the forgiveness of God in Christ. If you're willing to forgive, the friendship becomes so strong, nothing can tear it apart. If you're unwilling, any slight thing will rip it to shreds. So in the area of friendship, seek wisdom. Not just to understand, but to do. Will you pray with me? Our Father, thank you for seeking our friendship at great cost. Please make us wise so that in our friendships we reflect something of your wisdom and live in ways that foster deep and meaningful friendships. In Jesus' name.